The Bob Murphy Show, episode 235. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, we are doing the fifth and I believe final installment of my series on Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. So let's jump right in. You've probably heard the clips of President Joe Biden talking about a new world order, but in case you haven't, and for posterity, let's go ahead and play it. You know, we are at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy, not just the world economy, in the world. It occurs every three or four generations. As one of the the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946. And uh, since then, we established a liberal world order, and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people died, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're gonna, there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. And just for nostalgia's sake, let's go ahead and play a clip from... George H.W. Bush, when he said similar things. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. Uh, It was a simpler time back then, wasn't it? Those of you around my age probably remember Dana Carvey. Not gone that, wouldn't be prudent. Dan Quayle still gaining approval. Little did we know at that time, chuckling at that goofy, wacky president that he was part of the international cabal. So you say, Bob, you know, we like your economic analysis and uh, don't get me wrong, this Klaus Schwab guy, he's up to no good, but why do you got to keep bringing the -the over-the-top conspiracy theory stuff up? Well, I had a clip where Schwab is just casually talking about how everyone's going to be microchipped by 2026, but unfortunately, it's not in English. My, My wife showed me the clip. And then she said, well, it's subtitled. And, and so I had just assumed it would be German. And I started playing it and I realized, no, he's talking to a guy in French, the guy who's interviewing him. Schwab is an educated man. I mean, I realize Europeans in general tend to know more than one language, unlike Americans. Incidentally, people will often say things like, like talking to the British or the French, and they'll say, uh, you know, hey, if it weren't for us, you'd all be speaking German or they'll, they'll talk about you know, if we hadn't stood up to the Nazis, you know, we'd all be speaking German. And I always thought that sounded odd that no, not even the Nazis could have made Americans learn a foreign language. In any event, 
So I don't have that juicy quote for you because it would just be in French. And I imagine many of you don't speak French. But I started poking around and I thought, you know, I bet you there's quotes from Schwab talking about one world government. So I typed that in. And lo and behold, there is an organization called the World Government Summit. Or I guess that's an event. And um, the organization of this, so I'm looking at their website. So the website here is worldgovernmentsummit.org slash about. And so it says organization. The World Government Summit organization is a global, neutral, nonprofit organization dedicated to shaping the future of governments. The summit and its various activities explores the agenda of the next generation of governments, focusing on harnessing innovation and technology to solve universal challenges facing humanity. Since its inception in 2013, the summit has championed the mission of shaping future governments and creating a better future for humanity. The past seven editions of the summit have successfully established a new model to collaborate on an international playing field to inspire and enable the next generation of governments. So that sounds very nice, doesn't it? But they're literally saying what we're trying to do is influence how all the governments of the world unfold in the next generation. We have an agenda. We have a vision that we are going to harness governments around the world and change how they unfold. All right. So I, again, it's, it's a catch-22 that I alluded to in a previous installment where if they just openly talk about you know, the, the globalists, what they're doing and what their aims are, and people are like, well, it must not be nefarious because they're openly admitting it. And yet, if they just speak in code and euphemisms, and then the conspiracy theorists point and say, oh, see, see, what they, what they mean by that essentially, oh, come on, you're grasping at straws. So it's like, no matter what they say, it's not a big deal. So anyway, why don't we play some clips? So the first one I've got here is just Klaus addressing the World Government Summit back in... Oh, let me just tell you, though. The World Government Summit is a global knowledge exchange platform for governments that was established in 2013 under the dynamic leadership of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, Vice President and Prime Minister of the UAE, United Arab Emirates, ruler of Dubai, and is poised to scale newer heights of excellence and inclusivity. Okay, and so when Klaus is speaking to this particular crowd, like everybody in the audience is clearly from the Middle East, and you can just tell how they're dressed. So this first clip I'll play is from him addressing them in 2019. Let's take a listen. What does it mean, globalization 4.0? Definitively, it has to be more sustainable. We cannot destroy, continue to destroy our environment. It has to be more inclusive. Those people who have lost the hope for a better future, they have to be given a new vision. They don't want to wake up with nightmares. They want to wake up with dreams. We need a more multi-stakeholder globalization, which means a globalization not led just by governments, but where solutions are elaborated jointly by all stakeholders of society. Okay, so in case you missed it there, he was talking about solutions being proposed by 
stakeholders besides governments. All right. So again, it sounds very syrupy and yeah, what's, what's, what's the big deal? But what Klaus is saying is like these other organizations, particularly large multinational corporations, NGOs, things like that, that they also should be at the table deciding on policies that will affect humanity going forward, not just the governments of the world. So again, not that I'm a fan of elected governments, but when people are talking about, you know, someone being like a James Bond type villain who's trying to take over the world, what would it look like except this? Okay. And now to get a just a better understanding of how does Klaus Schwab work and why is he so successful and what's his operational style? Let me play some clips. So this I'm finding this on YouTube and it was posted in early January, 2021. So I'm not sure if this is from the 2021 world government summit or is from the 2021 and they're posting it. I don't have it at my fingertips when the 2021, but in any event, this was either 2020 or 2021. Like I said, this was uploaded to YouTube in early 2021. So here, let me just play two clips. One from the beginning of his, you know, just say what he, introduces himself and starts talking and then a little bit after the meat of what he's getting at when he's addressing these people. Let's take a listen. My dear friend, coordinating minister, His Excellency Gargavi, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure and honor to be back here at this meeting. I couldn't imagine a topic which is more important for the future of the world and particularly for this region than the relationship between governments and innovation. I will talk about three major developments, the new context which we face in the world and how they impact on us and particularly on governments. Now, what do we have to do to restore trust? Of course, we need honesty, we need morality, in leadership, but we need particularly responsible leadership. And I emphasize the word responsible because leadership has to respond to the needs of those who have entrusted us with leadership. And in this respect, I have to commend this country and its leadership, particularly his Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the Vice President and Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates and the ruler of Dubai, for the vision with which this country is led. The vision is to be the most competitive country. And ladies and gentlemen, in our competitiveness report, four years ago, the UAE was at place 27, then it moved to 24, then to 19. And now it's the 12th most competitive country in the world. But I would say the vision comprises also to be the most modern country, the best governed country. And people today say, and you mentioned it, Your Excellency, people today, they need an identity. They need to be proud of something. To be proud means 
to belong to the most competitive and the best governed country. Okay, so again, notice how diplomatic and, you know, he, he's not afraid to call people your highness, your excellency. You know what I mean? That, that's just, he, he knows how to work the crowd. He's like, that's what these people, that's the protocol they use here. That's what I'll do. If Klaus is speaking to a bunch of academics, he would say, oh, air professor, da, 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 you know, so on. If he was talking, you know, who's among some Americans, probably he'd roll up his sleeves and start talking engineering. You know, get to, oh, that's what that's Americans like. They don't care about titles. They want to just get down to brass tacks. So he knows how to deal with the people that he's dealing with. And then notice, in the, you know, the second half of that excerpt I played for you guys, what is Klaus doing? He is a consultant, right? And his clients include rulers, political rulers. And he's giving them advice, just like he would give advice to somebody on how to run a company, you know, hey, the fourth industrial revolution's coming. How can I be prepared to make sure I don't get left behind? And Klaus would have all kinds of useful things to say to such a person. And likewise, hey, I'm the absolute ruler of a moderately sized oil-rich country in the Middle East. What do I do to make sure, number one, I don't get invaded by the West in the next 20 years, but also that you know I maintain my grip on power and then hopefully expand it and become wealthy? wealthier, I should say. Well, what do I do? Klaus Schwab says, ah, glad you asked. I've thought long and hard about this. And here, let me tell you. And because Schwab has clients all over the world, he's not intimidated by these people and they take him seriously. So that, I mean, that's, that's what he does. And because he's got so many other people on board, he's a, he's a power broker. He has the ability to tell people, hey, you know, you play ball, you do this, this, and this. What we could do, you know, if you go into into league with us, is such and such. We could do this, this, and this for you, but then to reciprocate, we need you to do such and such. And that's how this guy works. And he is sharp. He's very Machiavellian, just tells them how it is. Power politics and makes a good analysis. And he's got his fingers in all sorts of different areas. And so he knows a lot more about surveillance technology and what's going on with revolutions in biology and so forth. And that a lot of these rulers would not know their own scientists and stuff would not be up to speed on that. And he, he would have cutting edge information. So you can see how this works. All right. So why don't I now pivot back to Schwab's book with co-author Thierry Malaret, COVID-19, The Great Reset, now, at this point, I'm up to page 65, going over fiscal and monetary policies. All right, so on page 67, Schwab says, the artificial barrier that makes monetary and fiscal authorities independent from each other has now been dismantled, with central bankers becoming, to a relative degree, subservient to elected politicians. All right, and so there, I mean, he's stated, I agree with him, that he's saying traditionally there was this notion that central banks were supposed to independently set monetary policy, right? That it was, oh, you want to do what's in the best interest of promoting long-run economic growth and maintaining a stable currency. And by stable, they mean one that depreciates at a predictable rate. They don't actually mean stable. But I would argue after 2008, but he's saying especially during the pandemic, central banks around the world really opened up the monetary spigots. And the, it was clear that they were under duress from the political officials to do that. Like, it's not that they could have said, no, we're not going to do that. Like, 
that would have been unacceptable. And so, you know, now, now we've sort of crossed the Rubicon there. And now we're in this region where everybody knows full well the central banks are doing what political officials want. And a bit later here, now on page 68, he says, this is where modern monetary theory and helicopter money come in. With interest rates hovering around zero, central banks cannot stimulate the economy by classic monetary tools. The stimulus must therefore come from an increase in fiscal deficits. Put in the simplest possible, and in this case, simplistic terms, MMT runs like this, colon, governments will issue some debt that the central bank will buy. If it never sells it back, it equates to monetary finance. The idea is appealing and realizable, but it contains a major issue of social expectations and political control. Once citizens realize that money can be found on a magic money tree, elected politicians will be under fierce and relentless public pressure to create more and more, which is when the issue of inflation kicks in. All right, so he's kind of uh, middle of the road, I guess I'd say, on modern monetary theory, where he's basically saying, yep, yeah, it's correct insofar as it goes, but the danger is once the public seems to realize that, oh, wait, so we just print money and Zeus doesn't strike us down. We just go ahead and print money and have the government buy stuff that then they'll want more and more. And that's eventually going to lead to inflation. (laughs) On page 70, Klaus says, at this current juncture, it is hard to imagine how inflation could pick up anytime soon. Uh, A little bit later, he says, Olivier Blanchard, the former chief economist of the IMF, thinks that only the combination of the following three elements could create inflation. A very large increase in the debt-to-GDP ratio, a very large increase in the neutral rate, and fiscal dominance of monetary policy. The probability of each individually is already low, so the probability of the three occurring in conjunction with each other is extremely low. All right, so that's, again, as I said last episode in the series, Schwab is, I don't think, a very good economist. Like, he's real uh, mainstream in his thinking, and to the extent that I think the Austrians are better than the mainstream, this is a good example of that. Okay, this, this, I thought this was an interesting excerpt. So pages 73 to 74, Schwab says, even though the Fed and the U.S. Treasury manage the dollar and its influential network worldwide with efficacy, skeptics emphasize that the willingness of the U.S. administration to weaponize the U.S. dollar for geopolitical purposes, like punishing countries and companies that trade with Iran or North Korea, will inevitably incentivize dollar holders to look for alternatives. So again, this is, he's pretty neutral. He's just stating things like, hey, this is how it is. It's, it's hard to get a read on him and to say like, you know, how do you feel about this? So you get the sense there that he does sort of chafe against the U.S. authorities and their tendency to throw their weight around, which would make sense that, you know, Schwab's whole shtick is he wants to have a, multi-stakeholder approach. Again, remember, he, someone like Schwab does not like the U.S. being a global superpower because, again, they could just have an election and have a Donald Trump type in there and Schwab can't control that. And so he doesn't like unilateral action. And so the idea that, yeah, U.S. officials are going to come in and, oh, this country over here is trading with Iran? Well, we're going to punish you. He doesn't like that because it's like, no, mind your own business, I got my associates, you know, we got our companies here. Maybe we want to buy natural gas from Russia, you know, so don't you come in and tell us we can't. So later, page 75, Schwab uh, quotes Henry Paulson, who said, U.S. dollar prominence begins at home. The United States must maintain an economy that inspires global credibility and confidence. 
failure to do so will over time put the U.S. dollar's position in peril. And now this is Schwab talking. The exorbitant privilege is intricately intertwined with global power, the perception of the U.S. as a reliable partner in its role in the working of multilateral institutions. Now, quote, if that role were seen as less sure and that security guarantee is less ironclad because the U.S. was disengaging from global geopolitics in favor of more standalone inward-looking policies, the security premium enjoyed by the U.S. dollar could diminish, warns Barry Eichengreen and European Central Bank representatives. All right, so I think Schwab knows that the U.S. dollar's days are numbered. And the way I'm interpreting this is he's sort of just setting the table and saying that, yes, because the U.S. is continuing to act irrationally and not as like a good member of the global community, then, you know, it's going to eventually forfeit its coveted position and that the dollar is not going to be the world's reserve currency anymore. Again, I'm reading a little bit into it. That's what I'm saying. Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder, if you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. At this point, let me just read to you guys the end notes. So here, my point is to look at the people that Schwab is quoting from. So I had a note to myself. So this started on page 76. I just read the end notes because he quotes Henry Kissinger. And so then I went back and, and we know if you've been following this series that Kissinger is Schwab's mentor. Like that's partly or largely why Schwab went into, you know, he left pure academia and sort of went into geopolitics was because he took a class from Kissinger. All right. But anyway, I'm sitting here looking at the end notes, you know, I'm flipping back and forth. You know, I got my finger where the end notes are and going back and forth, the main text. And I just sat and, and looked at the people he was quoting. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like, so just look at how, uh, in terms of like the power politics and just the elite set and the smartest guys in the room and so forth, like, here we go. So this is starting on footnote 40 or end note 42. And let me just read the two pages of them. So it's John Cassidy of the New Yorker, Andrew McAfee, I don't know who that is, Olivier Blanchard, Carmen Reinhout and Ken Rogoff, Emmanuel Sayez and Gabriel Zuckman, you know, the inequality economists. Again, Ken Rogoff, Olivier Blanchard, Ruchier Sharma, don't know who that is. Two other people I don't know. Henry Paulson, Barry Eichengreen, and then Henry Kissinger. Okay, so some of you may not know those names, but for those of you who do, they're all plugged in people, very connected and tied into the existing institutional structures. Okay, how about this? Here's some conclusions from Schwab on page 78. It is, of course, much too early to depict with any degree of accuracy the form that the societal reset will take in different countries, but some of its broad global contours can already be delineated. First and foremost, the post-pandemic era will usher in a period of massive wealth redistribution from the rich to the poor and from capital to labor. Second, COVID-19 is likely to sound the death knell of neoliberalism, a corpus of ideas and policies that can loosely be defined as favoring competition over solidarity, creative destruction over government intervention, and economic growth over social welfare. For a number of years, the neoliberal doctrine has been on the wane, with many commentators, business leaders, and policymakers increasingly denouncing its market fetishism. 
but COVID-19 brought the coup de grace. It is no coincidence that the two countries that over the past few years embraced the policies of neoliberalism with most fervor, the U.S. and the U.K., are among those that suffered the most casualties during the pandemic. Okay, so there, you know, he's stating it pretty clearly that free markets lead to massive death from pandemics. All right, so on page 88, he says, uh, specific situations of turmoil cannot be forecasted, but can, however, be anticipated. Which countries are most susceptible? At first glance, poorer countries with no safety nets and rich countries with weak social safety nets are most at risk because they have no or fewer policy measures like unemployment benefits to cushion the shock of income loss. For this reason, strongly individualistic societies like the U.S. could be more at risk than European or Asian countries that either have a greater sense of solidarity or a better social system for assisting the underprivileged. Da -da 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 -da. In a similar vein, the Confucianism prevalent in so many Asian countries places a sense of duty and generational solidarity before individual rights. It also puts high value on measures and rules that benefit the community as a whole. All of this, of course, does not mean that European or Asian countries are immune from social unrest. Far from it. As the Yellow Vests movement demonstrated in the case of France, violent and sustained forms of social unrest can erupt even in countries endowed with a robust social safety net, but where social expectations are left wanting. Okay, so this is just Orwellian. You know, so he's, again, the big picture is he's contrasting, oh yeah, those individualistic societies that care about rights as opposed to, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Thank you, Mr. Spock and Klaus. He's casting individualism as the villain here and then praising Asia and Europe in contrast to like the US and the UK. But then he says, this isn't to suggest that Europe is immune from this. Like, look at these yellow vest protests in France, which if you didn't know any better, you would think was due to like income inequality or something. No, the yellow vest protests were due to taxes on gasoline. Like it was too expensive for truckers. Like that's what that was. Okay, the next subsection here is called the return of big government. And he says in this, one of the great lessons of the past five centuries in Europe and America is this, acute crises contribute to boosting the power of the state. It's always been the case and there's no reason why it should be different with the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> this is funny. So Klaus is showing how like wars, for example, historically went hand in hand with huge growth in state power. And then he's talking about taxes during wartime. He says, during World War II, income tax in America turned from a class tax to a mass tax with the number of payers rising from 7 million in 1940 to 42 million in 1945. The most progressive tax years in U.S. history were 1944 and 1945 with a 94% rate applied to any income above $200,000. Such top rates, often denounced as confiscatory by those who had to pay them, would not drop below 80% for another 20 years. <laughs> right, so it's, anyway, I just thought that was funny that, you know, <laughs> these people, you know, they they denounced this 94% rate as confiscatory. Like, my point is that he could have just said these confiscatory rates were denounced, but instead he's got to, you know, say, you know, this isn't me talking. I'm just saying those who had to pay a 94% marginal tax rate consider them confiscatory. And I didn't know this. He says, um, in the UK during the war, the top income tax rate rose to an extraordinarily stunning 99.25%. He says on page 91, today the situation is fundamentally different. In the intervening decades in the Western world, the role of the state has shrunk considerably. 
This is a situation that is set to change because it is hard to imagine how an exogenous shock of such magnitude as the one inflicted by COVID-19 could be addressed with purely market-based solutions. Already and almost overnight, the coronavirus succeeded in altering perceptions about the complex and delicate balance between the private and public realms in favor of the latter. In a surprising and sudden turnaround, the idea, which would have been anathema just a few years ago, that governments can further the public good while running away economies without supervision can wreak havoc on social welfare may now become the norm. On the dial that measures the continuum between the government and the markets, the needle has decisively moved towards the left. He says, for the first time since Margaret Thatcher captured the zeitgeist of an era when declaring that there is no such thing as society, governments have the upper hand, right? So that's Schwab saying governments have the upper hand. Everything that comes in the post-pandemic era will lead us to rethink government's role. Rather than simply fixing market failures when they arise, they should, as suggested by the economist Mariana Mazzucato, move towards actively shaping and creating markets that deliver sustainable and inclusive growth. They should also ensure that partnerships with business involving government funds are driven by the public interest, not profit. So here's a nice one on page 93. Looking to the future, governments will most likely, but with different degrees of intensity, decide that it's in the best interest of society to rewrite some of the rules of the game and permanently increase their role. And he talks about having a new social contract. So here, just the way he's talking about it. So this is page 95, the subsection entitled The Social Contract. And uh, he says, it's almost inevitable that the pandemic will prompt many societies around the world to reconsider and redefine the terms of their social contract. And then this is the part that annoyed me. He said a little bit later, this dissonance and an emergent questioning of the status quo is finding expression in a loudening call to revise the social contracts by which we are all more or less bound. No, nobody's calling to revise the social contract, right? That's Schwab and his buddies. This is complete astroturf. But again, he tries to make it sound like it's this, you know, upswelling of a popular public movement. (laughs) What about this? So this is page 101. Another aspect that is critical for social contracts in Western democracies pertains to liberties and freedom. There is currently growing concern that the fight against this pandemic and future ones will lead to the creation of permanent surveillance societies. This is explained in more detail in the next chapter, blah, blah, blah. Suffice to say that a state emergency can only be justified when a threat is public, universal, and existential. So listen to this. In addition, political theorists often emphasize that extraordinary powers require authorization from the people and must be limited in time and proportion. One can agree with the former part of the assertion, but what about the latter? Expected to be a prominent component of future discussions about what our social contract could look like. So in case you got lost there, he's saying political theorists often emphasize. So notice he's distancing himself. He's not saying he cares about this. You know, some say <laughs> that maybe people have rights. So political theorists often emphasize, one, that extraordinary powers require authorization from the people, and two, must be limited in time and proportion. And so Schwab is saying, of course, we can agree with one, namely that extraordinary powers need to authorize people. And he says, but what about the latter? What about number two there? So is it really the case that these extraordinary new powers must be limited in time or proportion? Maybe we'll just have them forever. He quotes Kissinger. As Henry Kissinger reminded us, the historic challenge for leaders is to manage the crisis while building the future. Failure could set the world on fire. 
So again, we, we've got this opportunity. This crisis has given us a chance to reshape governments around the world. Government has the upper hand. And let's go ahead and do this. Okay, let me just, I'll end with this quote from page 113. He's talking about progress, da da da, da. This will only come about through improved global governance, the most natural and effective mitigating factor against protectionist tendencies. However, we do not yet know how its framework will evolve in the foreseeable future. At the moment, the signs are ominous that it is not going in the right direction. There is no time to waste. If we do not improve the functioning and legitimacy of our global institutions, the world will soon become unmanageable and very dangerous. There cannot be a lasting recovery without a global strategic framework of governance. Oh, you know what? I lied. Let me, he's got some other quotes here, again, just to show his worldview. Page 114. The more nationalism and isolationism pervade the global polity, the greater the chance that global governance loses its relevance and becomes ineffective. Sadly, we are now at this critical juncture. Put bluntly, we live in a world in which nobody is really in charge. All right, so again, it's this catch-22 where, you know, Schwab is lamenting all these uppity populations around the world voting for politicians who are sort of pulling back from multilateral arrangements. And so from Schwab's point of view, if we don't have global governance, if there's not this integrated framework by which the elites run things, then nobody's in charge. And that's horrifying to him. You know, no, somebody has to be in charge of planet Earth. You can't just have anarchy. And then given that someone's got to be in charge of it, why wouldn't it be Schwab and his buddies? Right. And also too, if you, if you notice, I forgot to mention at the time, but if you go back and listen to those clips I played from Schwab speaking at the World Government Summit, he includes himself, right? He's not saying you rulers or you leaders, these are the qualities you need to exhibit. And I'm just here offering advice as a humble academic. No, he's, he said we or us or something like that. You know, he, so you can, if you go listen to it again, Schwab included himself in that. He was saying, we all as leaders of the world need to do such and such. All right, so I'm not putting words in his mouth when I say things like, number one, Schwab says there has to be a group of people running the world, like he's openly saying that. And then two, that he thinks it's going to include him. Again, he openly says that. I'm not grasping at straws here. So I think that's a good spot to wrap up my discussion of him. So you say, well, geez, Bob, what the heck do we do about it? So number one, spread the word, right? Keep in mind a point that Mises made a lot relying on David Hume, that in the long run, Mises argued, there's no such thing as an unpopular government. And that might sound counterintuitive at first. But what Mises was saying is, think of it this way. At any given time, the regime only consists of a few thousand people. And there's millions and millions of citizens or subjects, depending on you know the type of the regime. And so this even was in 1984. I forget the exact wording, but it, it's you know saying that you know Winston realized and O'Brien knew that the party could be overthrown by the public in a moment's notice. I think they said something like like a horse using its tail to swat away a fly or something. Like that's the disparity and then the power. But the problem, as O'Brien was saying to Winston, was you're not going to be able to awaken them. So, you know, it's, it's never going to happen. That, yeah, if you could somehow get the public to see this all at once, then you'd be fine. So that's, you know, that was the, the counsel from 
the force of evil in that in that novel. But so the everybody agrees on the political situation, the power politics of it. The people, in a sense, have the power no matter what the regime is. And Mises would argue too. He would say, look, even if you say, oh no, this particular ruler, you know, is in charge because of force. You know, he 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 rules at the barrel of a gun. And Mises is still though it's ideas that keep him in power because it's ideas that are in the heads of the soldiers. And why are they pointing the guns out at the people instead of turning and pointing the guns at the ruler? It's because of the ideas in their mind. It's not purely physical force, all right? So as I say, I know it's cliched and whatever, but truly education is, is the, the ultimate long run solution to this stuff. The more people who see what's going on, the better the chance of liberty. Klaus Schwab would not be able to get away with what he's doing if more people knew about it. He relies on the fact that he can openly talk about what he's doing with his buddies and his allies in the press aren't going to cover it because the public understandably thinks, oh, come on, if there really were this elite cabal trying to subvert governments around the world and take over the planet effectively, surely crack reporters would report that and, you know, win a Pulitzer Prize, right? No, that's not what would happen. What else? Well, I think in the near term, or let's even say the medium term, as far as the United States is concerned, the best we can do is support a breakup of the states, that liberty-minded folks should move to states that break away from the rest of the U.S. federal government. So I've written a pamphlet on Texas called Common Sense, The Case for an Independent Texas. I'll link to it in the show notes page, or you can just go to texascommonsense.com and it'll redirect to it. It's free. Or if you get the printed version, it's as cheap as Amazon would let me sell it for. Also, in terms of your you know, finances or you know, what do you do with your household or whatever, many of you may know the work I do with Carlos Lara, what's called the infinite banking concept. So let's see, going into the 2016 election, Carlos and I made a video called How to Weather the Coming Financial Storms. And in that video, we gave a three-pronged strategy for how to just make sure you don't get wiped out with the economic crash coming that, or crashes, I should say, that Carlos and I anticipated. So I, I will say anybody who had done what we said at the time is sitting pretty, and we still both think it makes sense to do that. So I'll link to that in the show notes page as well. So again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 235 to get these links. You can also, if you want to just see the component of it having to deal with the infinite banking concept, I can just point you to go to thecaseforibc.com and you can see our latest book on this stuff. I'll redirect you to that. All right, kids, stay safe out there. I'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.